your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap because you're an american express platinum guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through amex travel which means a 4 p.m checkout and those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. One of your co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer are the others. Hello, guys. Signing in here as one of the others. <laughs> gentlemen, gentlemen, good day. <laughs> Evan, who's on the show? Uh, this week, our guest is Matthew Akins. Not to get all nostalgic, but as you'll hear Matt and I discuss, he was the very first guest on the Longform Podcast nearly 10 years ago. I can still remember the day he walked in to be the first guest on the long form podcast. It feels like yesterday. Really? Not to me. <laughs> <laughs> it does feel like a long time ago to me too, although I still have access to how eager I was to have Evan do the first interview because I didn't trust me or Aaron to do it. Accurate. I also <laughs> remember at that point we were using one mic and I had, oh, a, yeah. I had the thought, maybe we should get another mic. And I was like, eh, sounds pricey. <laughs> <laughs> To give people a perspective who are thinking about starting a podcast, when we started this podcast, we thought the way to record it was to put one mic in the middle of the table that would pick up both people. So you're probably already ahead of where we were when we started this show. The truly amazing part is that we continue to do that for some time. I know that's like for like the first 50 or 60 episodes, I feel like. It wasn't that many. It wasn't that many. If anyone goes back and scrolls to the very, very start of the long form podcast history, uh, we're very sorry. It does not sound good. But Evan, we're living in the present. We've got multiple microphones. What did you talk to uh, Matt Akins about? In the present. So Matt has, subsequent to that conversation, had a really remarkable career reporting from and writing from a lot of areas in conflict, including Syria, Yemen, Libya. But he's done, I would say, the bulk of his reporting from Afghanistan, where he lived for long periods. He also speaks the language. And he's written for the Times Magazine a lot about Afghanistan. And he has a new book out called The Naked Don't Fear the Water, which is about a journey he took from Afghanistan together with a friend who was fleeing the country and trying to make it to Europe. And I won't tell you any more about it. It's an extraordinary book. Matt's an extraordinary reporter and human being. And I was very happy to have him back. We spoke actually in person back in December. I have always enjoyed his work. And there's been uh, quite a bit of it since uh, he was last on this show. So uh, I look forward to it. I've been enjoying our partnership with Vox. We produce this show alongside them. Now here's Evan with Matthew Akins. Matt Akins, welcome back to the Longform Podcast. Thanks. It's great to be back. <laughs> it's nice to see you. We don't want to act like it's been 10 years since I've actually seen you. I've seen you many times between them. But it's been 10 years since we sat on either side of a microphone and had this kind of discussion. That's right. Yeah. And I didn't realize the time what a historic thing I was doing <laughs> by coming on. 
I just showed up with a six pack of beers, if you remember. I do remember, and yeah. And kind of treated it as a, as a funny thing that, you know, my buddy was doing. Hey, you're going to have a podcast. Everyone's got a podcast these days. He'll never keep That's this up. That's a new thing. Yeah. Yeah, everyone has a podcast. That was in 2012. Everyone didn't have a podcast then, so it was a bit of a novelty. <laughs> it is a real artifact, and I was listening to it this morning, and I in the introduction, I think I said something like, you know, there's Intrepid, and then there's like Beyond Intrepid, and that you were had moved into a realm beyond Intrepid as a reporter. But now I feel like you're grizzled. Now, 10 years later, you uh-huh. would be considered a grizzled foreign correspondent. Is that like a physical description? I, I think there, it comes with a certain... Uh, but you know, you There's a lot the more gray in my beard. There's gray now, in your beard. For sure. There you go. There is. And a lot has happened. And it's interesting because I, I was listening to the podcast as well. And I think there was a, well, obviously, youthfulness and a kind of, kind of innocence to it, I think. And it was still the beginning of my career. And I, I had been to these you know, war zones and, and conflicts and, and have been affected by it and, and seen a lot of things. But in the last 10 years, so much has happened. So many terrible things have happened that perhaps grizzle is, is a is a word that would describe how I feel. Yeah. I mean, it's a different scale almost what you've seen in those 10 years compared to the few years yeah. before that that we were talking about at the time. Yeah. It takes time to understand these things and Maybe it's a project for the rest of your life as well, but definitely feel like there's been a loss of of innocence in those 10 years, for sure. Well, I want to talk about how that happened and how you feel about it. At the end of that episode, you had been in Afghanistan for nine months at one point, and then you were talking about how you'd gone back for two or three months at a time Mm -hmm. to report a story. But then I think we finished with you were going to move there. So tell me a little bit about what your life was like when you were sort of living in Afghanistan. Because in the book you paint a little portrait mm-hmm. of this life where these, these sort of expats always pass through and there are these parties. And I think a lot of people who don't know how a freelance foreign correspondent operates may have actually no idea what it would be like under those circumstances. Right. Well, there's a scene in the book where it's 2012. It's the height of the surge. Kabul is flush with, you know, foreign soldiers and money and contractors and journalists and, my housemate and I, um, she's an amazing Dutch journalist, Betta Dam, uh, we're having a party. And all these people show up to the party, and it's a success and fun, but also a bit decadent and clearly this bubble world that is transient. And it's happening in the midst of this you know, brutal conflict. So that's a sort of vignette from the lifestyle of journalists and expats in those days in Kabul. There's a sort of irony embedded in that where the bigger the war gets in a way the more attractive it is to a lot of types of people to come have these very personal experiences there it feels like yeah it attracted all sorts of people all all kinds all kinds of nuts and uh all kinds of war profiteers and it was definitely a place to make one's mark or make some money and i mean i guess i'm in a sense one of them but a lot of people or some people grew a genuine connection to the country, to people. They made Afghan friends. Some of them got married to Afghans and, and they stayed and tried to put down roots in some cases, even though it was a very difficult place to do that just because of the, the violence and the, and the uncertainty. And ultimately, all that's been wiped out now, right? 
so there was this kind of, I think, corner of it or side of it where people were, were genuinely trying to connect with the country. And that was what I wanted to do and a lot of my friends wanted to do. And one of the people you met and became close with was Omar. That's a pseudonym, right? It is, yes. How did you meet him originally? We met in the lobby of the Mustafa Hotel in 2009. I needed a fixer. Translator was not long after my first journey to Afghanistan. And it was for the master of Spinboldak story that we talked about in the in first, Harper's, yeah. in the first uh, interview on, on the show. And this was when you were going back because you exactly. had done your border crossing, basically snuck across the border, met with this sort of famous leader, and then you made a second trip. Exactly. I came back to Kabul to do more conventional reporting around the story. So I wanted to go down to Kandahar and investigate this powerful police commander and suspected drug trafficker. And I needed a fixer to go with me, someone I could afford because I had a Harper's, you know, expense budget wasn't much. And established fixers were charging a lot in those days. So the manager of the hotel was like, well, I know just the guy for you. He's this young former military interpreter who's trying to get his start in journalism too. So I walk in the lobby one day and there's Omar waiting for me and he's down to go to Kandahar and we go together and sort of the start of our friendship. But over the years, we became very close. We became close to his family as well. He would often work more as a driver for me. And so we did quite a few stories together and been through a lot of quite hairy situations, you know, yeah. um, getting uh, ambushed or whatever, driving through Taliban controlled territory. And so we'd become very close and, and trust each other. And so we were prepared to do this journey together. The journey is initiated in a way by him, in a way by, by you. Describe why he wanted to leave Afghanistan. So he'd always dreamed of emigrating to the West and having you know, a better future there since he was a little child growing up as a refugee in Iran. But then when he moved back to his country, in the beginning there was a lot of hope for Afghanistan, so he thought he could make a go of it there. But as things began to fall apart, he pinned his hopes on one of these uh, special immigrant visas the SIV program that the U.S. government created for former employees in Iraq and Afghanistan who would be at risk because of their service with America. And so he had worked for the American military, the U.S. Special Forces. He had done the time. He'd been out there on the front line with American troops. But he applied and, and didn't get it. There's been a lot of bureaucratic delays. He didn't have some of the right forms. So he was rejected after a long wait and then decided that he would go the smuggler's world. You know, he would just travel illegally to Europe like so many other Afghans were doing at the time. This is now 2015. The borders have kind of opened up in the Balkans, you know, under this, this, this pressure, this mass, massive flow of migrants, mostly Syrians, right? The Syrian war kind of precipitated this, but the second largest nationality was Afghans who were crossing. So it was a time when people were just picking up and going from Afghanistan. Anyone who kind of was thinking about it was like, this is now the time. So he was making up his mind to go. At the same time, I was kind of casting around looking for an alternative to a book that I had sold that I realized I didn't want to do anymore. It was about Pakistan, hmm. about Karachi. I didn't and know that. Yeah, I just, it was meant to be a kind of move in my life. I was going to move to Karachi and change things up and do this book about this huge city. But for various reasons, I didn't end up doing that. And... 
realized that I, I wanted to actually go with Omar and, and write a book about that. So we made our decision to go together in the fall of 2015, but we didn't actually leave until the following summer. In our last interview, I feel like there was this tossed off moment where you said, you know, at times I can kind of pass for being Afghan because I have half Asian features. But here you were talking about the idea of going with him meant truly embodying a new identity. So how did you feel that you were able to do that? Well, I still looked the same way that I did, <laughs> you know, when I showed up in the country, which is half Asian, vaguely ethnic, passed for Afghan, even though my, my mother's ancestors are Japanese and my father's a European. And so I had the physical appearance of an Afghan and I also uh, had learned to speak Persian pretty fluently by then. And definitely in preparation for this project, especially since it was delayed for so many months, spent a lot of time like practicing, improving my language skills, developing a kind of backstory and a fluency with that to be able to explain who I was. And I had to create a character, basically. Yeah. And I knew that I was going to be tested, basically, not just by the migrants that we met on the road, but literally tested by like border authorities who will try to determine if you're actually from the country you say you're from, because a lot of migrants sometimes will say they're from a different country because they think they'll get more lenient asylum treatment, for example. So Moroccans might try to pass as Syrian or uh, Pakistanis as mm -hmm. Afghan. And it was, in fact, tested. Multiple times. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was definitely going to be a, a challenge where the consequences for failure were pretty high. It could be, you know, arrest or, or kidnapping. But I did feel like I, I was up for it. I knew that you had facility with language. Uh -huh. There's a difference between that and confidence in the fluency you have and the accent that you have. I mean, this is, you've been going there since what, 2008, mm -hmm. 2009? 2008. I mean, in 10 years, less than 10 years, to be confident, to travel and meet other migrants on the move, potentially from Kabul, mm -hmm. who would know the neighborhood that you're saying you're from. Yeah. How sure were you that it would work? Well, the thing is, is that in Afghanistan, there's quite a few different dialects and accents. There's Afghans who've been refugees in Iran, in Pakistan. There's Afghans who don't speak Dari as a first language. They speak Pashto, right? So there's a lot of like linguistic variation. So there's that coupled with the fact that on the migration trail, generally, people kind of give each other, not the benefit of the doubt, but they don't ask too many questions. Like everyone's kind of hiding something or at least they're just not talking too much about the illegal things that they're doing and so there's a kind of understanding that you don't probe or pry and maybe someone might be lying to you about something but it's not something you're going to press on mm -hmm. and so that helped a lot I think maybe some people did suspect no one really challenged me on it there was one guy who asked about my accent once that was that was the only time and I had this whole backstory that I had basically gone to Malaysia as a child. My like father was a migrant to Malaysia and then grew up in Malaysia and then he died and we had to go back to Afghanistan. But I think it was just so implausible for people to imagine that I was actually, you know, like a Western journalist in disguise as an Afghan in these like refugee camp that, that somehow that was never in danger of being discovered. That leads to the question, this broader set of questions involved with you being there in some sense by choice. And mm. there are different points at which you are maybe, maybe not have the choice to just pick up and leave. Yeah. But 
when you're setting out and you're choosing to go, you don't have to go. Mm-hmm. How much of it was you wanted to report the book versus how much of it felt like you wanted to go with your friend? You wanted to join him and help him. It started with the book for sure. You know, this was an idea that I had as a, as a reporting project. But very quickly, I realized that there was no way to kind of go as just an objective journalist. And I, I did have this idea that I was, I was trying to follow journalistic ethics. And I, and I did, you know, there was, there were definite ethical lines. Like I didn't want to harm anyone. You know, yeah. that was like kind of the principle. I was going to have to lie because it was an undercover trip, but I didn't want to harm anyone. And, but anyhow, so I, you know, very quickly became entangled in, in these ethical dilemmas where you just became much more of an actor in this story where you're being smuggled and you're traveling with smugglers and you're sucked into this underworld where you have to be an actor. And it wasn't just him. It was his family, his family got involved. And mm-hmm. so I got to know his, his whole family through this and we, we were with them. And, and I think at some point you just, you just say, screw it. I'm going to act like a human being and help my friend. That's the most important thing. You know, you actually realize, yeah, now that we're in it together, the only thing that matters is, both of us staying alive and staying safe and getting where we need to go and whatever I have to do to, to do that, I'm going to do. And there were certain points I'm thinking of when you first tried to cross, cross the border by land uh-huh. and, you know, you sort of discover it's more dangerous than you had anticipated. And then you and Omar have different risk tolerances. I mean, you're obviously both people who have a very high risk tolerance by virtue mm-hmm. of all of the work that you've done before, but there his is lower than yours. Yeah. And how did you navigate your sort of desire to kind of push the story forward or, or, or push him forward to succeed mm-hmm. on his route versus what he wanted and his decisions? I think, you know, that was a good moment where I, I realized that I needed to just take a back seat and follow him and what he was doing. You know, it was his story, not mine. You describe one scene where you end up having to fly somewhere and by virtue of having flown so much, you have like an incredible number of frequent flyer files <laughs> and you're like in this high end, uh, Turkish airlines lounge or whatever yeah. at the airport in Istanbul. Was there a sort of vertigo of kind of coming out and going back in? Totally. The book is about mobility. And it's about the way that mobility is socially constructed. And, you know, one of the big questions of our time is who has the right to move, to travel, right? We live in a kind of apartheid system of global mobility where you or I can just jet set around the globe. And some people are literally, you know, fenced into their country that's stricken by war and, or climate disaster and risk their lives just to, you know, cross a border. So that construct, that massive border construct system, which is actually like at the heart of global inequality, the way that that's constructed through the ways that, you know, moving in a plane can shrink space so dramatically. And that, mm-hmm. that's the kind of vertical you experience with that section of the book is that we were just trying to like creep across a land border and now I'm speeding through the air. And I think that's one of the virtues of this approach of embedding myself with migrants is that it allows the reader to see these different scales because you go from one to the other quite rapidly, right? With just grabbing your passport and getting in a plane. And that's not something you ordinarily think about. I mean, that's one of the things I I found quite beautiful about the book was just the way time and space get warped 
and you in your Canadian passport self mm-hmm. can go where you want. Yeah. And as you're saying, and then when you take on this other identity, you can't. And in fact, literally stuck in a migrant camp in Greece at one point. Mm-hmm. I feel like you can't help but wonder reading it. At what moments did you honestly think about pulling the, the ripcord? Like describe a little bit how you ended up in Greece, because I think that's a good example. Yeah, well, we, we were trying to cross to the Greek islands in these little rubber boats that people were going. But by the time we got there to Turkey, where the people are crossing from, the border had already closed in Europe and, and the European Union, the Greeks had instituted a new system where people who landed on the islands were kept there. They turned the islands into giant prisons, basically. And there was these big camps on them where people were held and processed. And only those with like successful, you know, past the first stage of their asylum case would be allowed onward to the mainland. And it was just a sham because everyone wanted to get to the mainland so they could continue with smugglers to rest rest of Europe. No one wanted to apply for asylum in Greece. Mm-hmm. And the biggest, largest, most notorious camp, the you know, most violent that had just burned down in a riot the week before uh, was Moria on Lesbos. So we definitely didn't want to go there and ask the smuggler like not to send us there, and he promised he wouldn't. And then, of course, that's where we like get taken, dumped on a beach, you know, at gunpoint, basically forcing in this boat. And cross, in the middle of the night, we end up in this camp where we're trapped, basically. And, I mean, I could have, yeah, gotten out with a phone call, had someone to come get my passport. But I honestly never thought about it. I mean, I wasn't going to leave behind Omar. It would have just been such a cowardly thing to do. You think it was mostly the force of your friendship rather than the the force of needing the story in some sense? Well, both. I think they yeah. both became completely intertwined at that point. And so it wasn't a, a difficult call to stick with them. And I, I'm glad I did. Did he and his family find it strange? <laughs> I mean, everything about this trip was strange. <laughs> I think sometimes, no, I think it's sometimes I find it strange how they didn't find it strange. Uh, you know, I, we, I knew this family and, and I got to know them very well through this trip and they just kind of trusted my intentions. I think, and they knew that I was, I was helping, you know, I had financial resources. I was helping with Omar's and our journey and they were just cool with it and were willing to let me into their lives in a way that was really extraordinary and not super common in Afghanistan, actually, that you have that kind of access to like an inner family life because people are quite conservative about around like men and women mixing. But his family was very liberal in that sense. And his mother was kind of the dominant character of the family. And we were very close. And she, she and her daughters were very uh, open about, you know, hanging out with me and talking with me and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, it was great to have this kind of family life in the book as a yeah, result. It's incredible. I mean, that it makes the book also a family story. And then there's also, it's a romance. It is, yeah. <laughs> yes. I hadn't met Layla at the time, but I have since met her and talked with her. And this is Omar's, at the time, someone he was longing for. Yeah, this was his beloved. Yeah, there's a lot of um, personal histories of people who were, you know, very generous and open about talking with me and it was partly the virtue of like having five years to work on this, right? I had time to go back and talk to people and really try to get at their sort of own thoughts, you know, their their inner life basically.
now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Does anyone here know the lyrics? Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. How are you taking notes at the time? Like, I'm talking about when you're yeah. on an inflatable raft. Uh, obviously, you weren't taking notes in that particular moment, but you're in a camp, you're hiding out in the woods, you're in all these places, mm-hmm. Both where it's difficult to do that, but also where I assume if someone saw you with a notebook writing in English, that would potentially be very bad for you. Yeah. No, I was seeing them on my phone. I mean, everyone's on their phone all day playing on WhatsApp or Facebook. And so it was totally uh, normal for me to be pecking away at my phone. Mm-hmm. I would type up the notes every day or every every moment I could get. I would type up dialogue, especially numbers or whatever, that where everything I could. I took 60,000 words of notes on this trip on my phone. And then I would email them. I've set up a whole different email and social media and stuff on this phone as in the guise of an Afghan. But I would email that to like another email account and then delete it from my phone. So if someone searched your phone, they exactly. would have found it. Yes, because it was definitely a possibility that thieves or the smugglers or police would go through your phone. You're operating with smugglers, mm-hmm. and that just seems so ripe for getting scammed. They set you out on this journey, yeah. you pay them a bunch of money, and you're having to put literally your lives in their hands. Mm-hmm. And one of the most insane moments for me is that one smuggler sends you to the island that you definitely do not want to go to. Yeah. You end up in the camp, and then consider using that same smuggler again further down the road. Yeah. How did it feel for you to try to operate within these kind of trust networks and smuggler networks? Well, it's a good lesson in powerlessness because there's no recourse. And these smugglers do often treat their migrants like crap. They can be vicious. They can just be incompetent. You know, their incompetence, I think, gets a lot of people killed or put in miserable situations. And... You learn what you take for granted, which is, especially in a country like America, you know, you there's a system of accountability, legal accountability, moral, reputational, whatever. And people just can't do whatever they want to you. To most people, there's a lot of people in our society who have much less power, who are powerless, who get treated much worse. But for most members of the society, they have some protection. And I mean, there's migrants who come to this country who get that kind of treatment, absolutely. But I learned traveling with migrants in, in Afghanistan, that uh, there's nothing, there's no like accountability at all, and that whatever happens to you is just gonna happen. So you learn to tolerate stuff, abuse basically, and it's just part of the risk and something that you have to try to calculate for. You know, you have to try to find ways to to hedge this stuff. And and you know, migrants do have systems for managing risk and and trust. I mean, that's actually what allows a lot of these migration networks to function. So so effectively, especially in a society like Afghanistan, where people 
have a lot of family and village-based ties that they leveraged in order to find smugglers and to go with a smuggler who, because the smuggler is from their same village or their uncle knows a smuggler's uncle or something like that, mm-hmm. then, they, then there's a better chance that the smuggler is not going to leave them for dead in the desert, right? But the further you get from Afghanistan, the less those links are. And so it gets more dangerous. I mean, that's another problem with these kind of harsh border tactics and, and law enforcement. It, it drives the smugglers sort of further underground and they become more criminal and organized. And it's harder for migrants to find trustable smugglers. So that was just something we had to kind of work with. But we, in the end, managed to cross, so we were lucky. You, at one point, you, you're separated from Omar and then you, you're going to meet back up and you, you end up doing this overland crossing where you're truly sort of sleeping out in the woods. You're crossing a river in order to get across a border. And, you know, you write something in those moments where you, you sort of say, I was losing the thread of what this was all about, or I was losing hold of what the whole project was about. What was it that you were driving towards or that you felt like could reconnect you to what you were doing? Well, I was trying to get back to Omar, and I felt like if I could just be with him and his family, then the trip would make sense again. But we had become separated, and I was sort of wondering if the whole trip was going to fall apart, and then so took took some pretty big risks to keep it going. And I think you just kind of of, um, worry that you're... You're doing this for the wrong reasons, maybe. You're, you know, you, you always have this consciousness that you're the writer, right? That's that doesn't leave you, and and so, in the back of your mind, you are observing everything that's happening and calculating how it's going to fit into your story. And the further I got from Omar, maybe the more I, f- I felt that voice, and the more that we stuck together, and I felt like I was helping him. You know, the the, the clearer things felt. Of course, you always have it in your mind that you are the writer. You knew why you were there. But also, you were inhabiting spaces that a lot of writers and journalists don't actually inhabit. Like, it's different to go into a camp and interview the people who are there and then leave than it is to live in that camp for months. Yeah. What do you feel like you learned that was different by inhabiting it? I think it gave me more moral clarity about this issue. You know, that it's wrong for people to have to suffer at borders like this, you know, to be brutalized and put in camps and and that there's something just sick about the, our world, that we have to have these borders that maintain you know, inequality. And the problem is that it requires a radical change in our societies if, if we want to get rid of it. I mean, that's the other thing is that there is no easy solution. So it's easy maybe to if you're looking at it from the outside to, to feel like maybe you, there's nothing that can be done about it. And maybe there, if maybe there is, there's nothing be done about it, but I just, I just felt what, you know, I just felt uh, a lot more empathy maybe than I would have. I think you realize that like what's important is action and human relationships. And if, if you don't have those, when you approach an issue, then you're missing the moral truth in it. And so to go in there and spend time with people like that was just a way of, of trying to understand it better by having some kind of moral obligation in the situation. And that doesn't necessarily make for better journalism because 
often there's a lot to be said from having more objectivity. And this is not a book that was, you know, an objective approach. I don't know. I, I think in some ways I feel more confused and uncertain the longer I spend with any subject. And this book is no exception. I was really struck by the randomness to me at every level, the randomness of why the borders are there, the mm-hmm. randomness of why some people live in the wealthy world and some people are trying to get to the wealthy world. Yeah. And then the randomness of the journey that one person that you run into who tells you to get underneath the truck or don't get underneath that truck will change your fate and your family's fate for yeah. a lifetime. I'm interested in what you think and feel about that randomness. Fate, chance plays a big role. I mean, that's what Omar says at the beginning of the book. He says, all I have is my luck. And when we tell stories, we tell, tend to tell stories of the people who make it, mm-hmm. who succeed, right? Or those are the people who get to tell their stories. But by the very fact that if, they are, if, if we're celebrating their success against the odds, that means there's a lot of people who didn't make it. Right, who got stuck along the way, who died, you know, whose bones lie on the bed of the Mediterranean. And yet those people's stories, I, I think, are carried forward in the stories of those who make it, especially if we, if we listen for that kind of contrapuntal, you know, beat of, of the voices of people who didn't make it. And we're not too celebratory in our telling of the story and so you know luck is individual when we talk about a a collective it's odds there's always going to be a few people who make it and and many more get stuck back and migration is a story that we all have inside of us and so we can kind of listen for those voices of, of all the other people who didn't make it in our own stories This is potentially a really dumb question. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to flag that. Okay. Uh, But when you left the trail, when you finished your journey, was there a part of you that missed being out there in a way like that there was something more connected about being on that journey than kind of returning to quote unquote normal life, your normal life? Well, I, I think I was still on that journey. I, I relived that journey for five years, mm-hmm. just retelling it over and over and over again. You know, it wasn't really until the summer when I sent off the proofs that I felt like I'd finished the trip. When you left, part of you leaving in, at the beginning of the book in 2015 or 2016 is you're closing down your house, you're leaving Afghanistan. And at that time, did you anticipate that you wouldn't be going back? Yes, this is how I thought I was going to leave the country. But I guess you can't really leave a country because I was back there (laughs) this summer. Tell us when you went back in relation to the fall of Afghanistan to the Mm -hmm. Taliban and why you went back this time. So in, you know, May, I uh, came here. I'd been in Nova Scotia finishing the book. I came here to get vaccinated and it was May and everyone thought the pandemic was over and people were frolicking. And I was like, oh man, I, I, I wanted to go to Afghanistan to tie up some loose ends with the book, kind of, and 
to maybe write a magazine story because, you know, I hadn't really been doing that in a while and needed to kind of start working again. Mm-hmm. So I went there at the beginning of June. It was the peak of the third wave of, the Del- of Delta there. And there was some ominous signs that the government wasn't doing well as the Americans were withdrawing, but it wasn't clear yet to anyone, at least not, no one I spoke to, that the government was going to fall within two months. But it, of course, did. So things quickly began to gather speed and districts and then provinces began to fall and the Taliban were basically marching on the capital and the evacuation kicked in and it just became this complete hurricane of um, one sort of dramatic event after another. Did you think about leaving at that time? So I was living with a Belgian photographer, Jim Hoylebrook, who had been in the country for seven years, I think. And he had learned language and very well connected locally. So he and I are both like, we're going to stay and see this through. As it became more apparent that Kabul could fall at some point in the future, we began to sort of think about preparing for that. So mm-hmm. stock up some canned goods and um, make sure we have a sat phone, that kind of thing. But then much faster than we anticipated, that became a, a reality and when the evacuation started, and basically the internationals, the U.S. Embassy, everyone else pressed the panic button and was like, get out as fast as you can. The New York Times, who we were both working for as freelancers, evacuated its entire staff, both foreign and local, and they asked us to leave too. They didn't just ask if you wanted to leave, they asked you to leave. Yes. They said, we, we're going to get you a spot on this evacuation flight that we're organizing we strongly urge you to be on it. Uh, but because we're freelancers, we could say no. And they were, you know, they weren't even sure if they could work with us anymore, that kind of thing, mm. because of various, like, corporate concerns. But that didn't end up being the case, obviously. They did work with you, but then did that count as having their backing if something went wrong? Or was it basically when you decided not to get on the plane, if something went wrong, it was on you? Yeah, I mean, that was basically the corporate, you know, at, at the individual level, editors, people we knew were supportive and that they were going to help us. But there was a kind of corporate decision that was made. But in any case, the fall of Kabul ended up being much less violent than people had feared. Yeah. Because the Taliban, the government collapsed so swiftly and the Taliban came in and established order. The violence, the airport was this crazy, violent battle, but... The rest of the city was okay. So we were able to continue reporting the whole time, covered the fall of the city, you know, we're there as the Taliban came in. Jim's photographs were on the front page of the New York yeah. Times. Your stories uh, were on the front page of the New York Times. Yeah, and so I started writing for the newspaper now because they didn't have anyone on the ground anymore. It was just Jim and I and another freelancer, Victor Blue, mm-hmm. who was a good friend. So for, I think about a month, we were the only ones there for the Times. And what, what was it like operating at that sort of the newspaper metabolism? I mean, not only do you normally operate at a magazine metabolism, but you also had been coming off of many years of operating yeah. at a book metabolism. Yeah, it was insane. I mean, it was a nonstop news story for a while. There was um, not just the newspaper, but lots of 
interviews for radio and television. Uh, they did a daily a few times. Also this video investigation into the drone strike. I mean, there were a lot of places that didn't have anyone left there. Who was left there besides besides you guys? I'm talking about the sort of American outlets that all had correspondents there yeah, in the past. Most of them chose to evacuate. There was some TV crews that were kind of operating out of the airport or the Serena Hotel, and there were a handful of freelancers who stayed behind as well. I know that you went, you describe in the magazine story that you did, you know, you sort of go and get these letters from the Taliban saying mm-hmm. you're, you're allowed to continue reporting. Mm-hmm. But were you mostly operating in a mode of like, hello, I'm a reporter versus, as we've described, you can pass. So I am just an ordinary person in the city going around seeing what's going on. Most of the time it was better to fly under the radar, but the, there was places like, for example, the airport where the Taliban would be like beating everyone, driving the crowd back, and you'd be like, no, I'm a, I'm a foreigner, don't beat me. But, but they still beat you because of the Taliban. They don't give a shit. But yeah, it was helpful to pass for sure. You also describe in this most recent magazine story the sort of assistance you were trying to provide to a group of people who were trying to get out. Yeah. Was there a question because you were working for the newspaper, whether or not that would interfere with being a reporter for the newspaper? It's the kind of thing that you can write in a magazine in a first person way as you've done, but it's more complicated for being a sort of newspaper reporter or had those lines just all been obliterated? I think those lines have kind of been obliterated. Like I, I remember talking to my editor at the newspaper and he's like, he's like, man, just do what's right. I did talk to him about it. I was mm-hmm. like, hey, I got to do this. And he's like, you got to help with this evacuation convoy. And mainly because it was going to, you know, it's going to take all night, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. And be a bit out of pocket. Um, but also because of, yeah, the ethical implications of getting so directly involved in, in the story, trying to help people. But it was a time when, like, they were, they, the times had been, you know, trying to get, struggling to get its people out and, I'd been, I'd been helping with advice with that and stuff. And it was, it was just a time like everyone was like trying to do what they could to help people. There was so much that needed to be done that no one was too worried about these, these distinctions. Reading that, you know, you had people contacting you. I'm sure you worked with many, many mm-hmm. locals over the years contacting you saying, what can I do or how can you help me? Mm-hmm. It just, the fact that you had, you had helped someone and that's what you wrote a book about, but that was a years long endeavor. (laughs) And now everyone needed to get out on this one moment. Yeah. It sounded extremely painful to me. Yeah. At the time, I think it was just so busy that there wasn't much time to reflect on it. Like, yeah, you just, you literally have hundreds of people begging you for help to like save them. And you have to ignore most of that or, or there's very little that you can do. I mean, there were people outside the country who were also helping, who started to started to get a little more organized as time went on. So and there were friends on the ground who were doing more of this because I was also trying to report and like yeah. I had a lot, a lot of job a job to do. So, but I would refer them to other people. I would I would try to do something for for everyone. But there was also people who just probably fell through the cracks. And I'm still like I wake up every day and there's messages on my phone from people in Afghanistan. Some of them are asking, you know, for help getting out. And that's going to continue. And that's sort of the risk that you have. Um, 
in getting involved with these stories. Like, I guess it's just the truth that there's a lot of people who need help and are suffering all around us in the world. If you just stay home and don't go out, then you don't have to run into them, get to know them. If you go there and you spend time and you get to know people and you make friends, then you become morally entangled and you have to find a way to kind of live with yourself where you're on one hand still open and receptive to people's like need for help, but you can't just destroy your own life trying to do everything. You'll just burn out. There'll be nothing left. And so everyone who does this kind of work kind of has to find a modus vivendi where they can balance things or they burn out, you know? Yeah, they burn out, which a lot of people do too. And I understand that it's not easy. And and the smartphones, the internet and WhatsApp like now makes it so much more immediate, right? It's, It's like literally you have a voice message from someone on your phone who's at the moment in Afghanistan. So it's, it's, it makes it hard to disconnect. But do you want, you know, is that what you want, is, is, is to disconnect from uh, what's going on in the world? Well, in the middle of all this, there's this drone strike. When did you hear about it, and then what did you do in the immediate aftermath? The strike happened in the evening, so we went the next morning. And there were reports of civilian casualties. One of the local reporters at the Times, who is now outside the country, who had been evacuated, had spoken to some of the family, and there had been people tweeting about it. So there was definitely reports of civilian casualties that we wanted to go check out. But when we got there, we found it was early in the morning. There was no other journalist there, but there was a lot of um, people gathered, neighbors. And we went into the courtyard of this house. There was a destroyed white Toyota with like bits of flesh still in it, blood smeared, and just a hysterically grieving family, and people were angry, people were crying, um, they were showing us photos of little kids on their phone, being like, is this a terrorist, you know, because that's what America had said, they just killed some terrorists. They announced it. Yeah, they announced it, and so the family had seen that announcement, and they continued to announce it for like the next couple weeks. And that was definitely literally insult to injury. So right away after talking to them, and then we went to see the mother, the women in the family were in a separate place and talking to them, like, and they were just so angry and so sad, crying. We knew it was a bad strike. that They killed a bunch of children. Maybe there was a terrorist in the car too. It turns out there wasn't. He was an innocent aid worker. Yeah. But it was definitely a bad strike where they killed children. Did you have difficulty calibrating your own suspicions slash anger about it? If you know, you've already seen children have been killed. So mm-hmm. there's no question that innocent people have been killed, no matter what, yeah. who the guy was. But did you feel that you had to pull back your own, what you started to know was going to be the case or suspect was going to be the case? Mm, no, I think I'm. I think I'm just naturally very... Suspicious, and I, I did question whether or not this guy had any connection. I kept my mind open to that, so no, that wasn't an issue. But we did have to investigate very thoroughly because we were challenging the U.S. military's official version of things, Mm -hmm. which is not something the New York Times says lightly. But we had a team of visual investigations, and Eric Schmidt from the Washington Bureau was involved, and there was a bunch of people working and it became a bigger project kind of snowballed from this like one little news story about on the day of the strike into a thorough investigation that refuted the military's claims um 
and was ultimately completely vindicated by their own investigation. It's not just that they did it. They came out and said this was a righteous, quote unquote, righteous strike, which I don't I wasn't sure if that was military terminology that they would often say that or this in this particular instance, that was the phrase they used. They were quite determined to stick to that story. Yeah, I'm not sure what they were thinking because they definitely went beyond what was necessary. And the military, when when they're calling it a righteous strike, when they're saying they took out terrorists, they're always like very certain. But then when you say that, well, there's allegations of civilian casualties or whatever, they always say, well, we have to wait for the investigation before we can comment or say anything, right? Mm -hmm. But ultimately, I think the story was so clear and there was so much attention, right? It wasn't just the Times. There's a lot of other news organizations that were reporting about it. They just had to come out and much earlier than they normally do in these cases and say, well, we fucked up. Were you surprised when they did that? I was surprised it happened so fast because I've worked on stories about civilian casualties from airstrikes by the U.S. before. I did one of the doctors that Borders Hospital, they bombed in Afghanistan in 2015. And I knew that these investigations can typically take months. And in fact, they just announced the final results of their investigation, which is that no one did anything wrong or will be dis- disciplined for this. Mm-hmm. And that it was just an, a mistake. It's really like the whole war in, in miniature to me. These claims, then it's not what was claimed, but no one will have to take responsibility. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you need systemic change. And there's um, the great front page investigation and series by Azmat Khan uh, that came out. Um, she's an amazing reporter. And it, there's been the stories by um, other Times reporters, David Phillips, Eric Schmidt, Mark Mazzetti had a big piece on a drone strike in Syria. So there's been a, there's a push right now happening kind of after these wars are drawing to a conclusion, but it's still very relevant because this war by remote control and over the horizon counterterrorism and all the stuff you hear people in Washington talking about, that's drones, you know, striking targets from above. So there needs to be like deeper change. And I think there's some momentum for it now, part because of these stories. And then you did this long magazine piece that sort of captures all of the inside and out at a fine grain level and also at the policy general's level, what happened with the Taliban takeover. Mm -hmm. Did you feel like you were summarizing your own experience there in some way? I mean, was this a final Afghanistan piece for you? Well, I don't think it's a final Afghanistan (laughs) piece, but it, 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 I think it felt for everyone like a, a chapter was closing. I think America now wants to turns back on Afghanistan. So no, it's not gonna be a final Afghanistan story, right? Because I don't want that to happen. And yeah, you got, you, you, there's no, there's no end. It doesn't end. It doesn't end for Afghans. It doesn't end for people who care about that country. With the Taliban being back, it's going to be interesting, but also very difficult to work there and, and very difficult for the people. Uh, I think I'm coming to terms with the fact that, yeah, there's no way to leave Afghanistan for me. I owe, I owe, you know, you owe the country a, a, a debt that can never be repaid, I think, when it becomes your career like this. Do you have a, a vision of how you'll be able to work there, how easy it'll be to get in and out and to operate? Is that something that feels known to you at the moment? So far, the Taliban have actually been fairly welcoming to foreign journalists. They haven't put a lot of restrictions on them. They've been giving them visas. They 
now I think want to show the humanitarian crisis that's happening in the country as a way to bring pressure because they, you know, they their their interest now is becoming the government and getting international recognition and getting the financial system. They want to rule, they want power, and so for now at least their interests lie with actually playing ball with the international community, and it's also a lot safer now. The war has more or less stopped in most of the country. The the Taliban aren't aren't you know insurgency anymore, so they're not. Uh, the same danger and um, you can get around you can get to parts of the country that you could never go to before that were never safe to go to before I was joking at the beginning about you being a now grizzled reporter but I mean compared to the last time we spoke for this show just the volume of the suffering and death and grief that you have experienced in the last 10 years is as someone who hasn't experienced it at that level, it's mm. hard for me to, to contemplate. And I'm wondering where you put all that. It's very cathartic to put it into writing. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that I try to reflect in the work is that kind of grief and suffering. and um, But also to transmute it into, into, into something that's more than that. You know, it's people's lives and the way that they are still struggling in, in the face of everything, you know, I think that's, we talk a lot about trauma and how important it is to acknowledge it and process it. And it is for sure. But that's really a luxury that we have living the lives we do in, in the West or developed countries. In places like Afghanistan, people don't have that luxury. They are dealing with a lot of shit and they are definitely suffering because of it. There's a huge psychological toll, but it's also very inspiring the way that they just get on with life and that the, the way that they, you know, laugh. I mean, that's the thing is that people in the midst of war and disaster are often doing their best to find, you know, some kind of joy or, their, or humor, at least black humor. So that is very inspiring to me, you know, to, to be around those people and to try to take something from their response to to trauma, which is strength and resilience. Do you feel that there would ever be a point where you would say, I have to turn away from this now? I mean, I'm imagining going into that house the morning after a drone strike, mm. you're facing people who are grieving in the most painful way, trying to capture information take on their emotions, understand mm. what's going on. And anyone would forgive you if you at some point said, I don't want to do that sort of thing anymore. Yeah, I think that everyone has that right to step away, to decide what's best for them. And, and maybe at some point I'll need to do that. I'm trying to find just ways of maturing in the sense of like finding a more balanced approach that doesn't suck so much life out of you but I, I don't seem to be succeeding <laughs> but I don't want it I don't want this you know I don't want this work to wear me down to the point where you know it begins to affect your personal life and I think it has affected my personal life but I've been lucky because I've had a lot of like loving family members and you know other people who've who've helped me out and been tolerant of I think the ways that I maybe I become a little damaged and so just doing my best not become that that cliche of a of a, of a war correspondent and, and yet still keep doing the work. There's a one uh, point in the book. You say something like, it's hard for those of us who grew up safe to truly understand what it feels like 
to not grow up safe. That's the gist of it. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm obviously mangling what was a beautiful paragraph, but it did make me wonder, what do you feel like drives you? Obviously, you have a drive to illuminate many of these stories and issues, and it made me wonder where it comes from or if you access that place as a way to kind of keep at it. I mean, it feels good to be able to do something well. And I think I realized early on that I have a high tolerance for, for risk and, and, and stress in these situations. And they're very interesting, not just to me, to, to other people too. And so to be able to do that work well is, is a, is a pleasure. And, and as awful as everything that happened this summer was, and frankly, I don't even think I've begun to process it. What happened to my friends and, 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 what's still happening there, but it was also one of the most rewarding, you know, professional experiences that I'll ever have, right? Being able to operate in the middle of this giant news story and, and do the work, do it well. I mean, that's just the, you know, deepest kind of meaning that you can get from your, from your work, for me at least. Well, Matt, thank you for talking to me about it again. My pleasure. I'll see you in uh, 10 years. 10 years. That's it for this episode of the Longform Podcast. Thanks to Matt for coming back on the show. His book is called The Naked Don't Fear the Water. You will not regret picking it up. Uh, thanks to our editor, Gabrielle Saldivia, to our intern, Noel Matier, to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, and to our partner, Vox. Thank you for listening. I'm Evan Ratliff, and we will see you next week.